If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Trials often follow triumphs. Trials often follow triumphs. We have seen this already in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 and chapter 13. We can see this elsewhere in the Bible, in places like the book of Joshua, where after the great victory over Jericho, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, right? You remember that story? After that great, great victory, in the very next chapter, chapter 7, Israel is defeated by Ai due to their sin, their arrogant self-reliance, their pride as they went into battle without regard for the Lord's direction. Or in 1 Kings, where after the miraculous events of Mount Carmel in chapter 18, Elijah runs from Jezebel in despair in chapter 19. Despair is a form of self-reliance as it looks inward. It looks to ourselves to give us what only God can give us. You see, arrogance on the one end and despair on the other end are two forms of the same sin of self-reliance. Trials often follow triumphs. Now this morning, I would just invite you to consider maybe the most recent triumph you've had in your life. That thing, that, 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 uh, that success, that, that victory that you can remember in your life and, and hold on to it as we go through our time this morning. As trials often file, follow triumphs, Andrew Bonar says, let us be as watchful after victory as before the battle. Let us be as watchful after victory as before the battle. You can go and click to the next slide too, Matthew. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So as we come to our passage today, we see Abram again. This time we see him returning in victory after, as we saw last week, his risky rescue of his nephew Lot. You'll remember Abram took his army and went and defeated uh, other armies in order to rescue Lot. Look at verse 17 and 18. After his return, that's talking about Abram, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now Abram here uh, with his um, 318 man militia, had just pursued these four powerful kings who were conquering all the tribes down the Transjordan uh, region. Uh, he comes to them, pursuing them some 200, excuse me, at 120 miles, uh, overtakes them in a nighttime defeat. He, he slaughters them, according to 
uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, and then chases them off into the, the northern part, uh, or what is now um, Syria, Damascus, as it's called. And then according to verse 16 of this same chapter, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 16, we, we see that he brought back all possessions and brought all back Lot with his possessions, the women and the people. So here Abram is returning. And he, as he returns, he is met by two Canaanite kings. The king of Sodom, who we learned his name back in verse 4, Bera, and the king of Salem, who is Melchizedek. And they meet in what's called here the King's Valley. Uh, the King's Valley is what we find in the New Testament, the Kidron Valley. Uh, the Kidron Valley is what separates the Mount of Olives from Mount Moriah. Or if you were to stand on the Mount of Olives, you would overlook the Kidron Valley and see the Temple Mount, where one day the Temple of uh, God will be. This is the region in which they met. And Abram here is coming home or coming back as a hero. Right? This is a great success. This is a great victory uh, that he overtook these armies. And he's coming back and he's welcomed by two kings. And this would be, once again, another test of his faith. A test of success here. Uh, we, we saw trouble come upon Abram. When there was a famine in the land, what, what would he do then? Now there's success. What would he do when he has success? Would he how would he respond to this? Uh, would it go to his head? Would he take credit for it? Would he claim the victory for himself and all that comes with it? Or would he continue to entrust himself to the Lord and give glory to God? As he meets with these two kings... We see them as real people, but also representing two ways of life, as we'll see that as we go. Abram responds to each king in a different way, both, both kings differently, and his response tells us something about the man he is becoming, about the man of faith that he is, and it teaches us how to respond to the triumphs we experience in our life. And so this morning we see two meetings, two kings, and two ways of life. First is the king of Salem, who is called Melchizedek. Look at it in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now Melchizedek is kind of a funny name, and we don't see this name a lot in the Bible. We see it in a few places which we'll talk about in a moment. But this name or this word means king of righteousness. We see that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. We're told that he is the king of Salem, uh, which is related to, that word is related to uh, uh, shalom. And the word shalom means peace. And again, in Hebrews chapter 7, it refers to Melchizedek as the king of peace. Salem likely refers to the early city of Jerusalem, the shortened version of that same word, Jerusalem. Salem, Salem, here we see it. Verse, um, uh, Psalm chapter 76, verse 2 says, His abode has been entrusted in Salem. 
his dwelling place in Zion. Again, referring to Jerusalem. Uh, the king's name here, Melchizedek, has righteousness, ha- has peace. It, it speaks to his righteous character. This was a God-fearing king. And we find here a parenthesis that he was a priest to God Most High. Now, we see here God Most High. Uh, we'll see something a little bit different when, when Abram talks. And it indicates to us that though he, he worshipped uh, or though he was a God-fearing man, he did not know that God Most High was Yahweh, the Lord, though he understood that there was a God. Here we find him as a, a king and as a priest, and that's unusual. We might not think much of that, but in the Levitical priesthood that would come, not yet, but would come in the future in the Bible, and priests and kings did not go together. Those were two separate uh, positions, two separate offices, if you will. Uh, this was a new idea to combine both king and priest. Melchizedek was not after the order of the Levitical priests. Now, we don't find Melchizedek mentioned again in the Old Testament uh, until Psalm chapter 110, where David writes a, a very often quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And he says this in verses one and two, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in, uh, mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Then verse four says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Quote, you are a priest forever according to the order or after the order of Melchizedek. Commentator Derek Kidner writes, the union of king and priest at Jerusalem was to move David to sing of a greater Melchizedek to come. So when David is is writing here in Psalm chapter 110, this is a messianic psalm, which means that it's pointing us forward to Christ, to the Messiah. And he's saying here that there was another priest that is after the order of Melchizedek. We'll come back to this in a little bit. But all of this, his, his righteousness, his priesthood, his peace, his kingship, all of it points to Melchizedek as unique, as superior to even Abram. And we see this as he blesses Abram, that the king, king Melchizedek blesses Abram. And then Abram responds by giving to the king. Look at it in verse 19. We'll see the first part. And he blessed him and said, this is the king blessing Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemy into your hand. The king here first blessed Abram and then blessed God the most high, El Elyon. He blessed God for what he did for Abram. So what we see here is this king recognized that what happened in the defeat of all of these kings, in in Abram's little army going off to war, was God's victory. That God delivered these men into the hand of Abram. He did it. 
And Melchizedek, the righteous king, recognized God as the victor. He is the one who gets the credits. And we can know this morning the same thing. That the victories in your life are actually God's victories. That the successes in your life are God's successes. That God did that. And that we have no, no, no reason to boast. No way to say, look what, look what I have done. Look what my hands have made. No, it is God who gives the victory. And we know that because in the end, all is grace. Everything is grace. Everything is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Everything is from God. All the good that you have is God's. This king understood that. And his blessing here we see was both outward. It was to Abram, but it was also upward. It was to God. His emphasis was on the gifts, on what God gave, on the giver, let me say. His emphasis was on the giver who gave the gift, not on the gift itself. Well, Abram responds to this blessing in verse 20. It says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That is, Abram gave him a tithe of the spoils. He gave him the top of the, the heap, the first of the spoils. The, the word tenth there means tithe. That's what a tithe is. A tithe is a tenth. It's the same. That's what that word even means. And here, what does Abram do? He, he, he gives him a tithe. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Another commentator, Kent Hughes, writes, Abram validated Melchizedek's priesthood by his tithe, as was customary for priestly services. At the same time, he, that's Abram, was giving a tenth to God. So in this giving to the king, Abram is giving to the Lord. Abram is worshiping the Lord even through his tithe. He's giving glory to God. He's recognizing as well that this victory is not his own, but it is God's. Abram's desire was not for personal gain. It was not for personal gain. It's not what he could get out of this. That's not what the victory was about. That's not what the, the, whole, um, the whole thing was about for Abram. It was about the glory of God. It was not about the spoils of war. Well, in contrast to the king of Salem, who represents the way of, of righteousness and the way of trusting in the Lord, we come now to the king of Sodom, who represents the way of the world, the way of the flesh, wickedness, or, or trust in the self. This, is, this king of, of Sodom is King Bera, who, who looked at Abram's victory and he saw a human achievement. He saw a man's victory over another man. And so he comes to Abram and he has an interaction with Abram, but it wasn't to bless him. He didn't come to give to Abram. Rather, he came to get. He came to bargain with a business-like offer. We see it in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Now, you'll remember that those kings came to the battle against the other five kings, destroyed the kings, and took possessions and people. This was in the valley of Sedim. 
and then they took off. Abram rescued Lot and the people and brought them back. And now the king of Sodom, who apparently didn't jump into the bitumen pit, apparently, um, he comes out and says, give me back my people and you can keep the stuff. Now, by legal rights, Abram could have kept all the things for himself. He went, he went and, and fought and received those things uh, for him, could have been for himself. But by keeping them, the problem, one of the problems with keeping them is someone could have said to Abram, you have prospered from the hand of a pagan king. You, you got your stuff from a, from a pagan. That's how you got rich. And God didn't make you rich. Some pagan king made you rich. However, giving to this king was also giving the spoils of God's victory. And giving that to, to a, a pagan ruler was giving the glory of God to the pagan ruler. So what does Abram do? He entrusts himself to the Lord. And he makes an oath here. He, he makes a, a, a solemn oath, or he swears in verse 22. And the Lord said to the king of, and the, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand. Uh, this is an oath. This is the, the same idea when you go to a courtroom and you raise your right hand. That's what Abram's, Abram's doing here. I've lifted my hand. I've made an oath. I'm swearing this, this, these next words. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. So here, Abram is connecting God most high with Yahweh, with the covenant God, with, 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 with who God really is, the Lord which the king of Melchizedek did not seem to understand at the time. The Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Same thing that Melchizedek has said. Verse 23. And what does he say? That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should uh, say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share and the share of the men who went with me. Let, let Anir and Eskol and Mamre take their share. Abram is rejecting the king of Sodom. He's rejecting this offer. Uh, the king of Sodom is looking to bargain. And by doing so, he is, is profiting. He is part of the victory of Abram. He rejects the offer. And completely depends upon the Lord. He says this two, in two different ways. In verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. And then in verse 24, I will take nothing. He's making it very clear to the king of Sodom, I don't want anything that's yours. I don't need your stuff. I don't need your, your money, your possessions, your people. I don't need it all. I don't need anything. I won't take any of it. That's not what this is about at all. Abram was prepared to reject, uh, to reject the, the king, prepared to take nothing in order to avoid any glory being taken from the Lord and any wrong perception of his motivations. He only wanted what God would give to him. Now, this is a change. We remember back in chapter 12 when Abram and his wife come into Canaan and they're, excuse me, they come into Egypt and Abram has a plan. We're going to call you my sister so that they don't kill me and then we'll make a plan to get us back out of here. But after Pharaoh takes his wife, he gives something to 
to Abram. He gives him a ton of stuff. He makes him very rich. And we find that Abram does not reject that gift. Now here, in chapter 14, we're seeing the growth of this man of faith. And now here, he's saying, I don't want, I don't want what you have. I'm trusting that God will give to me what I need. He rejects the offer outright. One commentary says, faith looks beyond the riches of this world to the grander prospects that God has in store. Faith looks beyond the riches of this world. And you can see that with Abram, can't you? Abram had promises from God of far greater things than, than Sodom, the king of Sodom, could ever give him. And so what did he do? He looked beyond that. He looked to the grander things, the greater prospects that God has in store for him. Specifically for Abraham, that was land, that was seed, that was blessing, that, that, that Sodom, the king of Sodom, could not give to him. Only God could give to him. Abram's rejection of Sodom and acceptance of the blessing of Salem was as if he said, according to Warren Wiersbe, take the world, but give me Jesus, to quote the old hymn. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And we might wonder to ourselves this morning, when prosperity of the world comes knocking on our door, what might we do? Are we prepared to reject what is not from the Lord in order to entrust ourselves wholly to him for greater things? Maybe things that aren't material. Maybe things that aren't even in this life. Maybe it's a rejection of the things now for things which are to come. Maybe it's the rejection of temporary wealth for eternal riches. Jesus says something similar in Mark chapter 8, where he says, or the scriptures say, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, that's Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? When the world comes knocking with their prosperity, prosperity of ill-gotten gains, Prosperity that we don't need, that is not from the Lord, what might we do? Will we entrust ourselves to the Lord? Will it really be about God's glory at that moment or about our own? In 1517, Martin Luther lit the flame that ignited what is called the Protestant Reformation in Germany. That Reformation has been characterized by the recovery of the gospel and summarized by what are called the five solas. Sola scriptura, that is scripture alone. Sola Christus, which is Christ alone. Sola fide, which is faith alone. Sola gratia, gratia grace alone. And finally, sola de gloria, glory to God alone. 
over a hundred years later, the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written. And it began with this foundational question. What is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Long before the reformers wrote that line, Abraham believed that very thing and refused to take the goods of King Sodom in order for God to receive the glory. Abram displayed an absolute commitment to the Lord, to God's glory and not his own. D.L. Moody once heard a preacher say, the world has yet to see a person who is totally committed to God. In response, Moody said, by the grace of God, I will be that person. And what about you and what about me this morning? As we come into the New Testament, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul that tell us whether we eat or whether we drink and whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. And we ask ourselves this morning, how, in it, how is it that we are living for the glory of God? We could see how Abraham was living for the glory of God. We could see how these reformers were living for the glory of God. We might ask ourselves, how are we living for the glory of God? But more than that, we want to say this is the way that Jesus himself lived, isn't it? In John chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What are we seeing here? That, that Jesus lived to the glory of God, both in his earthly life as well as in his death. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come that this, to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Jesus lived for the glory of God. Abram lived for the glory of God. The reformers lived for the glory of God. We too must live for the glory of God. Look back with me at chapter, uh, verse 18 in chapter 14. It says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Now we said we're going to come back to Melchizedek. Because at the mention of King Melchizedek, uh, we find that David was prompted to sing about a greater Melchizedek, a greater king priest who was to come, according to Psalm chapter 110. That was about a thousand years between Melchizedek's life and when David wrote Psalm 110. Fast forward another thousand years after the time of Jesus, after Jesus had come and after Jesus had died, the writer of Hebrews makes the connection that this king, 
King Melchizedek resembles, this is chapter 5, chapter 7 of, of Hebrews, he resembles, he, he foreshadows, he, he points us forward to the king of righteousness, to the king of peace, to the eternal mediator, to our great high priest. And who is that? But Jesus. Here, in, in not very far into the biblical narrative, we have yet another moment that the Bible is telling to us of another greater Melchizedek, a greater priest, a greater king who would come to, to bless in a greater way. We also see here in verse 18 what the king brought out to Abram. Bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? Now, bread and wine were royal food, but we can't help but recognize that here, the king of Melchizedek, King Melchizedek, who the Bible tells us clearly points to Jesus, brings out bread and wine. And what are bread and wine other than the elements that we find in the Lord's table? Here, the bread. The bread which symbolizes life, represents the body. And the cup or the wine that symbolizes joy and represents the blood of Jesus. This joy and this life, we find the source is God. That, that is actually in, in Jesus that we have life. That's what Jesus says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You want life? God is the author of life, and it comes through Jesus. You want joy? Joy comes in Jesus. It is through Christ that we have joy. Donald Barnhouse writes that life and joy accompany righteousness and peace. And what did we learn about Melchizedek? And what do we know about Jesus? But that they are righteous and peace. He says that when they are given, that is righteousness and peace, excuse me, that is life and joy, when they are given by the one who is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace, they are given in royal fashion. A king can do no less, end quote. And so as we come to the table this morning, we can know that righteousness and peace are the offer of the gospel. That Jesus actually came for that. He came that his righteousness might cover our sin and that we might have the righteousness of God. He came for us to be made at peace with God, to have peace in our heart, and to live at peace with one another. In the presence of righteousness and peace, in the presence of the bread and the wine, we have life and joy. This is the good news. This is the work of Jesus. And so as we come to the table, we see the bread. We see the wine. We remember Jesus who poured out his blood for our sin, whose body was pierced for our transgressions, that we might have life, that we might have joy. If you know Jesus this morning, we invite you to participate today and receive these elements as we give thanks. That's what we're doing this morning. We're giving thanks for the work 
of Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, and by that I mean that you've never trusted him as your savior, you've never repented of your sins and asked him to save you, or if you are currently living in unconfessed sin, you know it and you're refusing to repent of it, then we would ask for you not to take part in the service this morning. But rather than taking of these elements, we invite you to to receive Jesus himself. To receive what what only Jesus can give to you. That is life and joy. That is eternal life and joy in knowing that you are forgiven and that you are a child of God. And that comes as we come to him in repentance and faith. Oh God.